Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org and analytics director at Internews Ukraine. Russia is amassing its troops on Ukrainian border and the risk for a new large-scale military escalation are high. Is it a bluff or is it the real threat? We will discuss this with Peter Dickinson, chief editor at the Ukraine Alert blog at the Atlantic Council. Hello, Peter. Thanks so much for joining this podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure to join you. So uh, let's talk about this current situation, the current military buildup uh, of uh, Russian troops on the uh, Ukrainian border. Uh, the American experts are talking a lot about this. The American diplomacy is talking a lot about this. So what is the American vision? You you communicate a lot with American experts. What do you think? Is there a consolidated American vision uh, about what's happening? Uh, no, the short answer is no. Um, there is no consensus. Nobody really knows what to expect. Um What we're, what we're having to do at the moment is read between the lines because a lot of the information is actually classified and we don't know what they know. Um, all we do know is that the Americans have been raising the alarm very loudly, um, far louder, for example, than they did in the spring of 2021, so seven or eight months ago, um, When there, well, 10 months ago, when there, when there was a similar buildup, perhaps slightly less large scale, but at the time there was concern. But this time there seems to be a lot more concern. And the assumption is that there is information that is not being made public, uh, which suggests strongly that there is a real chance of, a, of an escalation. So that's actually guesswork. We don't know that, but it's an assumption based on the fact that the security services, the military, uh, and those who would have access to such information are leading the calls for a, an international response. And they have shared some information with uh, America's European allies, uh, who have also been more outspoken than usual. And we've seen comments from the, the Germans and particularly the French, which have been very out of the ordinary. Um, usually Paris and Berlin are exceptionally um, ready to reach some sort of uh, understandings with Russia and very cautious about provoking Russia in any sense, um, uh, overly so perhaps. Uh, and yet on this occasion, we've actually seen some quite strong language from France and Germany, which would suggest that the information they've been, uh, they've been provided with is quite uh, concerning. So do you think that's a major difference compared to what we have seen in spring? Because in spring, there was also news about military buildup, the exercises, uh, military exercises. So do you think that uh, the reason why uh, Ukraine's Western partners are much louder this time is that they have uh, access to some information which is not probably public and which raises so much concern? Well, that would be, yeah, that's the obvious assumption. I mean, I think that's, re that's reasonable to assume that because of the difference in reaction. Um, we don't know exactly what that is. It may be inside information from within Russia, from, from, uh, from, from agents who are operating, from, from sources of information within the Russian regime who have leaked information, for example, who obviously the Americans cannot compromise by exposing, by making public what they know. They may have access to, to orders that have been issued and, and directives that have been issued within the Russian uh, military hierarchy or within the Kremlin even uh, that suggest that this is not just a drill. This is a real potential invasion force being prepared. Um, 
that's certainly the implication from the reaction that we've seen, you know, from what we, from what we see above the surface going on uh, in Washington, in, in, in Brussels, in European capitals, in, in London. Um, that's certainly what we're, you know, that, that fits with uh, the pattern of what we're seeing. Um, because the, what we know publicly doesn't really suggest anything above the ordinary that we saw in the spring of this year, perhaps slightly larger scale. Um, military military um, analysis suggests that the forces are, are, are larger, but there's still, I mean, we're talking about 175,000 troops perhaps in total. Now that sounds like a big number. That sounds like a, um, you know, a pretty overwhelming force. But if you actually spread that over a country the size of Ukraine, um, it's not that big. I mean, even the, kid, the city of Kiev alone is approximately 4 million people. Uh, you would need, by most estimates, you know, around 100,000 troops just to occupy Kiev. Um, now, it may be that the Russian objectives are, are less uh, ambitious than that, that they may not be looking to occupy large parts of Ukraine, the whole of Ukraine, or perhaps uh, you know, half of Ukraine. Uh, has, as has been suggested in some quarters, it may be that they have a much more limited um, plan in mind. Um, but the the actual size of the military buildup does not suggest a full-scale invasion of the whole of Ukraine at this stage. Uh, but the reaction we're seeing from the Western leaders, leadership and the Western capitals would indicate that the information they have uh, is cause for serious concern. There is kind of a conspiracy theory. Another interpretation of that is that uh, Americans are so active in this issue because they because of the retreat from Afghanistan, and therefore they they trying to you know shift attention and to show that there are countries, for example, in Europe, much more probably important for Europe that they are willing to defend. Uh, what is your take on this uh, on this estimation on this interpretation? Well, I think it's tempting to link Ukraine to Afghanistan, and I think that's been that's been the case since the well before the withdrawal, but certainly since the withdrawal, I think it's been very tempting. I think the you know the Russians have led the way on that. They've been very eager to link Ukraine to Afghanistan. Um, I think critics of the of America's support for Ukraine have tried to link the two. Um, I don't see any direct link. I don't really think it would be in America's interest to, to make that connection. Um, and frankly speaking, I don't think there's much appetite in America for a for 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 at the moment for a forward forward-looking foreign policy. I think America is still very much licking its wounds from the Trump era and is 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 preoccupied with domestic issues. Um, and American voters are notoriously indifferent to foreign policy issues. Um, I don't think it would necessarily play very well for Americans for them to become um, embroiled in a confrontation with Russia. Uh, of course, there, it is a factor, though. I mean, America has taken a major uh, reputational uh, hit, uh, major reputational damage by the, the nature of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which has universally been recognized to have been a, a fiasco, a very damaging debacle. Um, by by any by any standards, and so of course that has damaged America's standing. America would be keen to to, to reassert itself, and Ukraine would be somewhere to do that. Um, so that is that is part of the thing. That's that's surely part of the equation for America as it looks to uh, to face off against Russia in this instance. But I don't think that America would have would have engineered this. I, mean, I think quite clearly, when we, there's no debate that there is a major Russian military buildup on the Ukrainian border. Nobody debates that. Russia debates the Russia questions what it means, 
but they don't say the troops aren't there. They rec- they openly recognize they're there. And Russia is quite happy to see the, you know, to intimidate Ukraine and to intimidate the West. You know, Russia is now actively increasing its um, its demands. So I think you know, any suggestion that this is somehow uh, engineered or invented by America is, 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 is pretty, pretty absurd and, and, and doesn't 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 um, doesn't fit with the facts at all. Coming back to this issue of possible um, possible full-scale invasion, one of the interpretations, uh, it was, for example, voiced in in our previous episode, one of our previous episodes by James Scher, a a well-known foreign policy expert, is that Russia can simply uh, attack the critical military, Ukrainian critical military infrastructure, and, uh, for example, destroy uh, Ukrainian military capacities just in a few days. And it was also expressed in, in some uh, publications in the American press. So what is your estimation of, of this interpretation? Yeah, I think that's the most likely scenario at this stage. I think that um, I, I personally think a, a full-scale invasion, if we're talking about you know, the whole of Ukraine, is, is a very, very small probability. And that's, that would be a... I mean, with, with someone like uh, Vladimir Putin, you can't rule anything out. Literally, that's that's uh, that's one of his great strengths. He's been able to create this this impression that he's basically a madman. That he's basically a, you know a a wild card who can do anything, um, you know, in geopolitical terms. So nothing can be ruled out entirely. But if we if we go down the list, certainly full scale invasion looks to be a very very big ask, and that would require a huge amount of troops, far more than the, the, the reported numbers that they have on the border now. Uh, you know, even double that number would be insufficient, probably. You have to wonder whether Russia even has enough troops to manage such a big operation. So that's, you know, the, the full-scale operation is certainly at the, at the far end of the, of, the, of the realm of possibility. Um, limited in, in insurgents, limited invasions, you know, for example, the Crimean bridge, land bridge idea, you know, to come from... Um, to come from Russian-occupied East Ukraine in Donetsk and Lugansk down through Berdyansk, Mariupol to, to Crimea. That's always potentially attractive from a Russian point of view. To take that further along to Odessa and, and, and cut Ukraine off from the Black Sea, also potentially very interesting then connecting Russia up with the Russian forces up with the Russian troops already in Moldova uh, has certain strategic appeal. Um, reopening the Crimean Canal from the Dnipro River, of course, would also be on the list of strategic objectives if that were to be a, a limited operation. So there are there are there are less. You know, it's not full invasion or nothing. There are less. I think that the that the option you mentioned of a a surgical strike against Ukraine's military uh, capabilities also very interesting potentially. Um, that would be that would be done without troops on the ground. I mean that would be a missile and uh, air air force operation, um, which technically is well within Russia's capabilities. So Russia has a very you know, overwhelming dominance in the air, which is never used actually in, in the Ukraine conflict. Russia has limited its involvement to ground troops, uh, artillery, um, drones, etc. They've not used their air force yet. Uh, if they were to do so, that would have a potentially devastating impact on Ukraine. Um, I don't know whether it would wipe out Ukraine's military capability entirely, but it could certainly cause major difficulties. And they could also strike infrastructure as well. I don't think it would be limited necessarily to the military objectives. I think we could be talking about elements of infrastructure, um, power stations, perhaps bridges, um, command centers, other such targets. Uh, but again, I mean, what, once Russia does that, 
then the veil is off. There's no more denials. It's a Russian war. It's a Russian operation. Now, of course, that's already an open secret. But still, in the diplomatic world, they, Russia maintains this so-called implausible deniability, um, where it basically uh, continues to deny everything despite the, the evidence. Now, that would obviously go if it launched strikes of this nature. So um, if they were to lose that diplomatic card of deniability, um, which does have some value in, in, a, in, a, um, in the international arena, although nobody really believes Russia, um, if they were to lose that, then perhaps they would want more to get more back rather than just wiping Ukraine out military. They might want us, for example, to officially take over uh, the unofficially occupied regions in East Ukraine, perhaps to expand them slightly to include the whole of the uh, Lugansk and Donetsk oblasts, for example, administrative regions. Um, that would also be um, potentially on Russia's wish list. So I'm, I'm not sure. Certainly they could do it. Certainly it's within their capabilities. Certainly they have that They have that option. Um, it would be a lot less costly in terms of uh, lives for Russia uh, if they did that rather than launching a, a land invasion. Um, so it has appeal in that sense. But would it achieve the aims that Russia has? I'm not convinced. Coming back to American policy, what possible solutions are discussed? Because we hear a lot about unprecedented measures that can be taken, the measures that Russia hasn't seen before uh, since 2014. What exactly is meant by these unprecedented measures? Well, America has not actually revealed exactly what they mean. Um, most most assumptions are that they would be restrict their access to financial markets would be would be significantly restricted. Um, their access to the SWIFT international payment system, banking system, would be cut off. Um, they would lose. Uh, they would lose uh, potentially, or have face restrictions on their on energy trading. Um, so major economic weapons uh, potentially. Uh, they would also potentially face the, you know, the, the final shutdown of the entire the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline project. Perhaps other pipelines would also be under question. Um, I think that uh, there would be there would be serious economic costs. Uh, now the uh, there, you know that's but that's the limit at the moment, as far as I understand. You know, President Biden has effectively ruled out any military. Uh, role for America, which some some in America thought was was rash to do that before anything has even begun to say we definitely take that off the table. So essentially, what we have on the table are economic factors. Now, um, you know, money matters. You know, to a lot of people in the Russian regime, in the Russian um, elite, the Russian hierarchy. Um, but is it decisive? Uh, I'm not convinced. I mean, I think if we look at if we look at Putin's motivations here. He does, you know, he sees Ukraine as an, uh, you know, a key issue for his whole reign. Ukraine, Ukraine will define Putin in many respects. You know, looking looking ahead and looking back, he's been in power for twenty odd years. Yes, he's risen. He's managed to bring Russia off its knees in many respects, internationally, geopolitically, you know, economically. But fundamentally, if he cannot bring Ukraine back into the Russian sphere of influence, uh, he's a loser, and he knows that. You know, historically, he becomes a major, major uh, a failure in Russian history, in Russian historical context. Um, and Russia itself will be under threat from the, 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 the dangerous example set by a democratic Ukraine. So um, this is a really existential issue for the Russians. Are economic factors enough to deter them? Uh, that's very much under question at the moment, um, even if the, the, the measures that America is proposing are, as they say, 
unprecedented. They're, they're far more serious than anything that was imposed in 2014. Okay, that's that's interesting, but is it going to be enough? I'm certainly not convinced. Me too. I would agree with you because uh, let's look at the Russian finances at the moment uh, compared to many Western economies. Uh, they're accumulating lots of wealth, so probably they will have it enough. But let's uh, let's come back to uh, detailed issues. For example, there is a lot of talk that. Uh, um, uh, United States can uh, exert pressure over Ukraine with regard to Minsk II, the so-called Minsk II agreements, not only United States, but France, Germany and other, other partners. Um, and that that's the goal of Russia, just to influence, have impact on Ukraine's Western partners in order, in order them to make pressure over Ukraine, for example, make constitutional changes, um, uh, agree on autonomy of the occupied territories, um, etc. Do you think this pressure is possible? Well, the Americans have officially ruled it out. I mean, the, the, this speculation is largely based on, an, on a single report quoting unnamed sources within the White House. Now, there may have been credible, may, they may have been credible sources. Certainly, the, the Associated Press is usually a reliable, a reliable source. You would assume that they would not have, you know, that if they if they say they were told that, they were told that. Um, so we have to give that some credibility. But the White House has officially said, no, we will not do that. Um, I'm inclined to believe that this is evidence of, 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 of differing opinions within the administration. And this, you know, the, 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 the Biden administration is a broad church, as we say. It's not a single, you know, it's not a dictatorship. There's a lot of different opinions there. And there are some within the Biden administration who would like to see Ukraine um, pressured into making the kind of compromises that they think Russia would accept. Now, it's another question whether Russia would accept them or not. Um, is Russia's end goal to have an autonomous Donbass? Is that good for Russia? Is that I, I personally don't think that that would bring any benefits for Russia, particularly, uh, and I don't think they would accept that. Um, so there are there are indications that there are interests within the, and then certainly France and Germany would be very happy to pressure Ukraine to make compromises. I mean, I think France and Germany, the limit, the, 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 there is no limit to the extent of compromises France and Germany would ask from Ukraine. Uh, almost, you know, they would go as far as they as far as they as far as they could if it meant bringing peace with with Russia and settling and getting back to the you know the, the important business of making money. So there are certainly people within the Western alliance who would be very happy to see Ukraine uh, the focus of of the peace talks. Uh, but I think fundamentally, you know, crucially, uh, the, the Biden, President Biden and, and people in charge of the American foreign policy are not amongst them. So they, they've ruled that out. It would be very hard for them now to go back on that, having publicly said, no, we did specifically rule that out. Um, that's very difficult in, in, in Western politics to, to make a very clear statement and then contradict it directly. That comes back to bite you, whatever it may be. Um, so I don't anticipate that. Um, I think what they may do is create the impression of compromise, to create the impression to get Ukraine to, to look for areas where they can say, well, look, what can we do that would make that would look like we're making a compromise, but we're not compromising Ukrainian security or the fundamentals of Ukrainian security. Now, the fundamentals, I think, are quite clear. Uh, there can be no uh, no vetoes on Ukraine's Western uh, integration from from a there can be no um, loss of Ukrainian sovereignty. There can be no sort of Trojan horse, as it were, of Russian influence in Ukraine by the Donbass. Uh, now, there's lots of areas that can be, um, there, are, you know, there are room for potential compromises. 
but I think the Ukrainian side is will be very clear that you know they have their red lines uh, and they've been quite clear on those red lines over the years and I don't think they'll be I don't think they will be fundamentally compromised um so I I, I think fun, you know I think basically we're, we're still in the same stalemate I don't think that the the West will will abandon Ukraine or say look do it this way or we're out you know we will we will cease our support to you that they will continue to support them, but they will look for some ways of, of finding air, finding room for some sort of to, to create the impression of compromise let's say I, mean, I think I think fundamentally it's also important to remember that the Minsk agreements are not set in stone by any degree and there's lots of room for different interpretations uh, which is part of the problem of course um, but that also gives room for Ukraine to and Ukraine's partners to to um, to maneuver in terms of what they want to offer, um, and what we are seeing is America looking to get involved in the peace talks, which is which is potentially very promising because um, Germany and France have not played a very forceful hand in terms of their counterbalancing of Russian demands. So uh, America may be able to somehow balance that out. Let's assume that the pressure is successful, not from the Americans but from the French and Germans, for example, if there, if there is such a pressure on implementing those political provisions of Minsk agreements, which Ukraine doesn't like. So do you think that uh, Ukrainian society is ready to accept that? Because we see how poisonous, how toxic this issue of, you know, losing some part of the uh, sovereignty with regard to Donbass is in Ukrainian society. So do you think that can lead to internal destabilization and to weakening of Kiev's central power, the president, which uh, can benefit Russia? Well, no, I don't think so. I don't, because I don't think it will happen. I think that um, if Ukraine were put in a position where they had to choose between a Russian Donbass or no Donbass, they would choose a no Donbass option. They would, they would, they would sacrifice the Donbass rather than accept it on Russian terms. I think the I think the, the the threat from a Russian Donbass is so severe that people in Ukraine would recognize that the country's sovereignty would not survive if they accepted it. Um, it would be it would be essentially accepting poison into the body. They would be accepting a fatal dose. Um, so I think that if that if that were to be the the choice that was put before the Ukrainian people, you know, do we accept a Russian-controlled de facto Russian-controlled Donbass back into Ukraine? with autonomy, with a veto power over Ukrainian foreign policy, with MPs in parliament, with a Russian controlled militia and judges and court system, uh, etc. Do we accept that or do we accept uh, independence or, or a frozen conflict? I think the, the vast majority of Ukrainians would choose the latter. Very few people would say, yes, it's worth accepting that on the, for the point, on the point of principle. I think people are much more comfortable with the current status quo or even with, the, with, the, with, the, with, the, with you know, if it came to that, a loss of Donbass than accepting it on those terms. Because it, not because they, 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 people don't care about Donbass, of course they do, but um, there, there is a recognition that those terms are fatal for Ukrainian statehood. Um, they're not damaging, they're not dangerous, they're fatal. So if Ukraine accepted them, it would be it would be akin to saying, okay, we do not want to be a country anymore. I don't think people will do that. My last question is about Ukrainian internal situation. So do you think Zelensky is strong or weak in the face of possible Russian aggression now? Well, I think Zelensky's... Um, 
transformation over the last two and a half years, over the first half of his presidency, has been a really a very revealing uh, process in terms of the dynamics that have that have taken place between Russia and Ukraine in recent years. I mean, if we talk specifically about him as a political leader at this current moment, I would say that um, he's not been particularly strong, but not been a disaster. And if we're talking specifically about this recent crisis over the last couple of months, I think he he downplayed it a lot at first, um, as he did in the spring of, of 2021, earlier this year. He downplayed that crisis a lot as well. And, and, and he was right, actually. He was proved right then in the spring that it was a bluff, that it was Russians saber-rattling to gain attention, to gain a summit with Biden, um, to, to gain attention, really, you know, to, to, to re return the Ukrainian issue to the top of the international agenda. Um, Zelensky was very consistent in his messaging in spring and said, this is just a bluff, we shouldn't get too alarmed. He tried to play a similar hand this time around. Um, and I think for the first few weeks, he continued to maintain that sort of position and his administration followed suit. Uh, but then I, I believe under, you know, after receiving a lot of feedback from the West saying, you know, no, this is actually serious. We really need to change our messaging and, and raise the alarm. He's done so. Um, I don't think he. I think he could have done more, perhaps, but um, I think he's he's done okay. Uh, but I would, I would, I, I would, I would also point to the broader transformation of his position. I think it's fascinating to look at the way that Zelensky is the is in many ways the arch, uh, the 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 citizen of the Russian world, if I could say that. You know, I mean, he is the most one of the most um, archetypal Russian world citizens I can imagine. You know, he he is someone who's grown up as a, in a Russian-speaking part of Ukraine, uh, very very Soviet, very heavily Soviet part of Ukraine. Um, he spent a lot of his professional career in Russia, working with Russians. His products, even when he's been working in Ukraine, have been targeted to the so-called Russian world. They've been in the Russian language. They've looked to reach out beyond Ukraine to the to the Russian market, and not only the Russian market, also the Russian speakers elsewhere. Um, you know, so he is a really uh, good example of of what Putin means when he talks about the Russian world. You know, in a very, in a very meaningful sense, and, and that was part. Of, I think that you know there was an aspect of that that appealed to you know elements of the Ukrainian electorate in two thousand nineteen when he won election. Uh, he came to power talking about you know, sitting down man to man with Putin and getting, you know, dealing with this, this, this ridiculousness and, you know, basically saying how the, the previous administration didn't really want peace and it's their, it's kind of their fault as well, sort of, you know, and we'll, we'll get it, we'll get, we'll get down to business and we'll sit down and we'll, and we'll, and we'll make peace with Putin. Um, since coming to power, he's actually changed his position, you know, diametrically. He's now, you know, he's now recognises that that Putin doesn't really want peace, that there is no way to deal with uh, Russia, that Ukraine has, um, has no choice but to fight and defend itself. And he's become a, you know, a, 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 a sort of, his positions have become very much in line with standard patriotic Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian rhetoric. And uh, then that's, his transformation reflects the realities of the conflict. Whereas, you know, when he was on the outside, he was trying to be this, uh, so let's all get along type, you know, cot Leopold type figure. Um, and then he's come in and he's really found out that actually yeah, it's not that simple. And Putin doesn't want peace and it really is as bad as, 
as, as his predecessor Poroshenko often said it was. Uh, and he, he was, was ridiculed for doing so. So I think Zelensky's transformation over the past two and a half years is very revealing uh, of the nature of the conflict and the, and the realities facing Ukraine today. I think I can agree with you because uh, it's it really shows how Ukrainian society is influencing its presidents and not and not vice versa. So Poroshenko transformation is also revealing because he was also in the you know in the process with these uh, semi-oligarchic parties which was very much linked to Russia and then he became a kind of a symbol of Ukrainian patriotism. So Zelensky is probably going along the same path. Uh, thank you so much Peter it was very interesting to talk to you and to hear your estimations. Uh, we had uh, Peter Dickinson who is uh, chief editor of Ukraine Alert blog at Atlantic Council. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I am editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. Subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Google Podcast, or Apple. Follow us on social networks, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, and stay with us.